Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk. Please consult with a qualified fiduciary advisor about your specific situation. Welcome to Money Talk, the longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. Annex Wealth Management is a proud member of the Barron's Top Advisor List and the Financial Times Top 300 List know the difference. Now, here are your hosts, Dave Spano and Mark Oswald. Team Tech Trust, it's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, locations Elm Grove, Mequon, Lake Country, Appleton, downtown at the Fister, and Annex Everywhere. If you can hear WTMJ, we definitely can uh, use screen share technology and meet with you. It's just that easy. You can start at AnnexWealth.com. Just click that Get Started button. My name is Danny Clayton. Let's take attendance. Mark Oswald. Good morning. Derek Felsky. Good morning. David J. Spano, good morning. How are you, my friend? Not bad. Let's talk about this week. The Week in Review is something we always like to start the show off with, and uh, it was quite a week. It really was. And Friday, uh, most of the day traded deep in the red. And, you know, we've talked a lot over the uh, several months about contracting GDP around the world and plummeting bond yields. We talked a lot about inverted yield curves. And the third other issue is this intensified trade tensions that are happening, particularly with the United States and China. And Derek, just on Friday, there was a lot of tweets and talk about uh, what could happen with China. And that certainly sent equities markets into the red. Right. When I first looked at the market, you know, before the opening, we were due for a, a modest rise in front of a Chairman Powell's talk at Jackson Hole. But then China came out and essentially said they're going to retaliate against the U.S. by imposing tariffs on $75 billion worth of goods. Now, remember, China doesn't import anywhere near as much from the United States as the U.S. imports from China, so they don't really have... They don't have, they don't have the bullets, but let's talk about that. And so I think the numbers are important when it talks about exporting and importing with China. Right. We, China imports about $120 billion from the United States. The U.S. imports about about $480 billion, uh, from China. So when you look at it on an apples-to-apples basis, the Chinese don't have as much with which to uh, impact the U.S. However, companies that do business in China amount to essentially the reverse, where the U.S. companies do about $480 billion in China, Mark, and Chinese companies in the United States do $120 billion. So net-net, it's kind of even. I found it interesting that uh, Derek said apples to apples because right in the middle of the conversation and what's really happening is what's happening both exporting and importing. Well, certainly it is. And when you think about the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy and, and the impact that this has on different things like cars going into China, for instance, they would have an additional tax on it. It becomes more expensive to buy a U.S. car in China if this goes through. And how much of it is posturing, guys, and how much of it is real is going to yet to be seen. We've seen some deadlines that have come and gone in the past. We've now got a September 1st deadline and a December 15th deadline for the implementation of these new tariffs on both sides of the deal. And it certainly is having an impact on the stock markets in the short term. When I think about what this could mean for U.S. companies, you talked about companies doing business in China. Well, they were ordered out of China. China on Friday, and that's really an interesting. That's a really interesting take from the president. Yeah, that was that was in a series of tweets that followed uh, Chairman Powell's comments. He basically said U.S. companies were hereby ordered to start looking for an alternative to China. Now, he's been suggesting that all along. He's been suggesting companies alter their supply chains away from China. China's actually been losing some manufacturing business from the U.S. anyway because labor costs in China.
China have been rising, and, and labor costs in countries like Malaysia and Vietnam are much lower, so it's more advantageous for companies to manufacture there. But I remember reading an article earlier this week in the journal about how hard it is for companies to actually find manufacturing capacity in, in Vietnam. So you just can't turn this on and off like a light switch. The other but thing, you went from suggesting to, to order, right? To and order. And, and, and whether he order. can do that or not is yet to be seen. Certainly the other thing, Dave, that you mentioned was Jackson Hole and the FOMC meeting this week. Uh, the Fed governor is getting together and trying to get a sense of what's going to happen with interest rate fiscal policy and monetary policy. Monetary policy in this particular case, with interest rates on the short end of the yield curve at the September meeting and perhaps the December meeting that are coming up of the FOMC. What, what were your thoughts there, guys? Well, I mean, I thought he was fairly dovish. I thought he basically split the difference. You know, he didn't want to talk about what they're likely to do in the next meetings. That's not really what Jackson Hole's about. His his topic was challenges of monetary policy. And so he went through a lot of those things. And one of the things he did mention a couple of times was that, you know, having to take into account trade negotiations that have yet to be finalized is very difficult, and it's not really part of the Fed's mandate. So when he said that we're going to look at the data and monitor developments, I, I took that to mean that basically they're going to be flexible, and they're still in an accommodative mode. Dirk Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. We're going to take a break, going to be back. Still a lot to come in the show. You can hear a lot about long-term care insurance. Is it right for you? Very few Americans have it. Why is that? We're going to dig into that with Randy Winkler from our planning team. Also, Common estate planning mistakes. Boy, Jill Martin has seen a bunch. She heads up the estate planning team at Annex Wealth Management. Speaking of the team, we talk about team tech and trust. It's under one roof. It's not sourced uh, from out out somewhere else. Uh, we're a local company with offices in Elm Grove, Mequon, Lake Country, Appleton, downtown at the Fister. And if you can hear WTMJ, we use something called Annex Everywhere. So if it's not convenient to get to one of our locations, that is no problem at all. We just use simple screen sharing technology. It's called Annex Everywhere. You can start today at AnnexWealth.com. 1013 at WTMJ. Money Talk back in a bit. Custom-tailored investment and retirement planning from a fee-only fiduciary. Know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Saturday, August 24th, this is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. I'm Danny Clayton. Mark Oswald is here, Derek Felsky, and Dave Spano. You know, when we were breaking at the last segment, Danny, we talked a lot about what's happening around the world, and that suggests that the United States economy may be slowing. In fact, there is evidence of that. That leads the conversation, at least from people that I'm talking to, of the R word, and that's recession. And what are the odds that we're going to have a recession in the end of 2019 or into 2020? You know, we've done some research and we looked at a lot of those numbers. And I think where we have to start, Derek, is the length of the bull market so far has been more than 10 years, 120 months, but it's been a muted recovery. No, it has. And, and typically, at, after a recovery of this length, you see, see excess emerge, things like wage growth north of 4%, speculation in, in a particular sector of the market leading to sort of a top-heavy equity environment. You see inflation perking up. You see the Fed starting to get concerned and raising rates. And what we've actually seen, I think it's partly because of you know the housing sector led us into the financial crisis. And the housing sector has taken a long time to emerge from it. We saw uh, new home sales this this month were a little bit disappointed. 
learning, but building permits were strong. Rates are now low. And there's a pent-up demand for housing. Lots of millennials living at home, perhaps they're paying off their student loans and the like. But the housing recovery really never emerged. So this recovery has been much less buoyant than prior recoveries. And that's one reason I think it's almost a Goldilocks environment. We're growing at about 2 2.5% without any inflation. So I'm going to take you back to those things, Derek, because I think when you start to think about what signs you see in a recession, you talked about runaway wage growth north of 4%. We don't have that going on right now. Wage growth's been around 3%, maybe even less than that. You think about inflation, runaway inflation. You know, you think about the 1970s and early 1980s when you had double-digit inflation. We don't have that going on right now. And the last thing you talked about was a, a Fed that's tightening monetary policy, and we don't have that right now. So there's a lot of things that we look at, and our investment committee as signs of of an imminent recession that we're not seeing right now. The thing I would point out, though, Mark, on that is that the odds of recession, it seems to me, have risen somewhat in the last you know, 12 months. We're seeing, we saw negative year-over-year print in Germany. The Chinese economy is clearly slowing. The U.S. manufacturing PMI in August was 49.9. That's the first time below 50 in quite some time. So manufacturing is weakening in the U.S. However, at the same time, as you and Dave point out a lot, the consumer is in great shape. We saw great retail numbers from the likes of Home Depot, Walmart, Target. Nordstrom even reported a positive surprise, which a is great, kind of a shocking. A great report, Derek, from out of Target, by the way, this week. Yeah, Target was up over 20% on that number. And and essentially, it's just a differentiation. Companies that are better utilizing technology to get their costs down, improve their, their service offerings and the like, are doing well at the expense of some of the bricks-and-mortar retailers like JCPenney. Now, it's been the longest recovery, but it's also been the slowest recovery. If you look at what's called cumulative GDP, in other words, for example, in 2010, you might have had 1%, 2011, 2%. If you add those all up, by comparison, it's been the slowest recovery. It has not been a V recovery. So the odds of a recession have gone up, but that doesn't mean we're going to have a recession. We have to remember that interest rates are low and obviously going lower from where we are today. And, oh, by the way, there is a presidential election coming up in 2020, and I would think the guy sitting in the chair at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is going to do everything that he can to avoid a recession before an election. Excellent point. And I heard a guy say this week, I thought it was kind of interesting, he said, arguing about whether or not there's going to be a recession is like arguing about death and taxes. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. So at some point in time, that's a natural thing that happens in an economy. But you start to look at our investment committee, guys, and what we're looking for. And the signpost, while there's an increased likelihood of a recession, at some point in time, it's not imminent. Well, you know, one aspect of all this uncertainty, Mark, that's been generated by all these trade conversations is equities are actually very cheap relative to fixed income. So, for example, the, the yield on the S&P 500 is now north in the 30-year Treasury bond, not the 10-year. So equities on a relative basis look very attractive. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management, along with Dave Spano and then Mark Oswald. So, if you um, kind of hear a certain way of thinking that you agree with, um, the way we approach the the business of, of financial and retirement planning, uh, you definitely should go to AnnexWealth.com and click that Get Started button, especially if the last couple of weeks and the turmoil and the, uh, and the um, volatility have made you a little bit of concern. If you're a little closer to uh, retirement, you want to make sure things are in order. We can get you over the finish line. AnnexWealth.com. Again, five locations, including Annex Everywhere. 127th and Bluemont is our headquarters. But again, best place to go is AnnexWealth.com. 
team, tech, trust, and a fee-only fiduciary model that works in your best interest. Can your advisor say that? This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference? It's Team Tech Trust. This is a team segment. We're going to talk about estate planning with the estate planning attorney for Annex Wealth Management, Jill Martin. Welcome back. Good morning, Danny. I found an article and I brought it to you and I said, hey, what do you think about this? And you said, I like it. I like mine better. Absolutely. And so you wrote a great blog piece and that is available on our website. Yes, it is. So it's really talking about kind of what are the the biggest planning mistakes that we see most common among estate plans that we review for clients and just things that we hear about in the community from other people? Let's go with the big three and, and not having the estate plan, using do-it-yourself software, and then relying on your neighbor and the legal advice. So let's go through those. What happens when somebody doesn't have an estate plan? And I can tell, here's the spoiler alert. I think it's a big mess, right? It, it can be a big mess. Basically, what happens is, is there are state statutes that, that default. So that there are rules that every state around the country has that says, if you didn't have an estate plan, this is what's going to happen. Because there are 60% of Americans that don't have an estate plan. So there's a couple of things, right? There's during lifetime, you would need to have guardianships in, put in place if you don't have a health care or a financial power of attorney, which is someone to step in and make your decisions and manage your finances for you. During lifetime, it's critical for you to have two documents in place, a health care power of attorney and a financial power of attorney. And that's where you select who's gonna be that person that makes your healthcare related decisions when you're not competent to do so. And also who's gonna be able to step in and manage your finances when you can't do it anymore. So that's important during lifetime because most people are gonna have some situation in their life where they're not going to be able to or they don't want to manage their day-to-day anymore so they need to pick who that person's going to be any other mistakes that that happen i mean that that people all of a sudden realize when they're kind of wading through this the other thing is is again the state provides default rules for who your heirs are right so it's generally going to follow your bloodline your next of kin so to speak but what happens is if you don't want it to go to those people or if you don't have any children or grandchildren and who do you want that to go to do you want it to go to siblings do you want to go to nieces and nephews? Maybe not if you don't have a close relationship. So you need to do planning to figure out who that's going to go to. Jill Martin is our estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. We're talking about the mistakes made with estate plans. Using do-it-yourself software, I hear these things advertised all the time. Bad idea, huh? I, you know, it's funny. I just talked to some clients yesterday. And, oh, my neighbor, you know, she did this, she did that. And I said, well, I said that, and that may very well work. But it was basically they, they researched on the Internet and picked a bunch of clauses from all sorts of different agreements that they like and threw them into a document, right? I don't know that that's going to be great. It might have saved you some legal costs up front, but I can probably bet you that for every dollar you saved on the front end, it's going to cost your family and your kids three to four times what you saved in legal fees to clean it up on the back end. Here's one of the other problems that you wrote about, and that's using the, quote, neighbor's legal advice. And there's your neighbors will always have an opinion on whether it's your what what yard trimmer to get or what estate plan to have. Absolutely. I'm all for the kibitzing around the coffee table. But what happens is, is everybody's got a unique situation. And so what your neighbor is going through from a financial standpoint or what their assets look like and their estate looks like, or even your parents or your siblings, everyone's in a unique situation. So doing just what you heard your neighbor talk about is not necessarily going to be the right fit for you. And so it's important to get a good advisor, whether it's a financial planner, a wealth advisor like we have here at Annex, an estate planning attorney, an insurance advisor, 
all of those people, you need to have your own team that knows your situation. So the last 10 clients that you've worked with, what would you say out of 10, how many were the same? Absolutely none of them. Let's talk about the legal nitty gritty. So when they go awry with legally invalid documents, then that's really where the costs start to go up because you've got somebody that needs to wade through that. Every different document that is part of an estate plan has different execution requirements so that it's legally valid. There's little nuances in executing documents correctly. And a lot of people don't read the fine print, which is important in legal documents. Another mistake is the wrong individual as the power of attorney, the executor, or the trustee. and that, That's a disaster in the making. So it is, Danny. And it's one of those things that I, I don't think people think about it as much as they really should. You know, it's a big decision on who is going to be that financial power of attorney for you. Who's going to be your executor or your trustee? Because they're the person that's going to be responsible for a, following your wishes, but B, keeping everyone else informed. And you want to make sure that person is trustworthy, good with finances, is a good family communicator. It's not just a default to I go with my oldest child and then the middle child and then the youngest. Like that's not necessarily the order. That, and that's what a lot of people do. They just don't think about it. And they say child one, two, and three. But that could get you into trouble. And I look at my my parents as an example. My mom has two brothers. One was financially very, very savvy. One is one was not. not. <laughs> um, and so there had to be a decision made there in, in terms of who did you trust. Okay. There's an estate plan in place, but things change. The estate plan needs to get redone a little bit. Right. So changes happen all the time, right? And so estate planning is never a one and done type of a deal. And so you want to make sure as things change, whether it's family, whether it's finances, whether it's tax laws, pull that thing out and dust it off and take a look at it. And that's one of the things I do at Annex for our clients is, is to do a comprehensive review of the current estate plan. We're talking about mistakes people make when they have estate plans. And the last one we're going to talk about is, is you've got the estate plan, but somebody better know where to find it. So that's a great one. And actually, you know, I just got a text from my mother-in-law last night. They live in Nebraska and they had all that major flooding in the spring. So their original documents are kind of AWOL. We don't know where they are. Now, we all have copies of them that she provided us, but the original will is basically destroyed from a flooding standpoint, right? So it's important to make sure, A, people have copies of them, but it's also important to make sure that you do keep them in a fireproof and maybe a floodproof safe, depending on where you are, and that somebody has access to that thing. Jill Martin, our estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management, part of the team talking about mistakes with estate planning. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Planning and investment insight from a fee-only fiduciary. And we put that in writing. You're listening to Money Talk on WTMJ. And we're back. It is Saturday. It's August 24th. Annex Wealth Management, a Barron's top advisor, a four-time member of the Financial Times Top 300. You can find out more about us at AnnexWealth.com. When you're there, look for the Ask button, and you can submit a question. We've got a bunch this week, couple that rolled in via text. Let's get going. Our first one is from Mike. Good morning, guys. Great show! Exclamation point. Love, Mike. Yeah. I'm retired and 66 years old, but I work part-time. Can I start an IRA, and is there a limit to the amount of money I can contribute in a year? Thank you. 
Well, excellent question. So if you're still working and you're under the age of 70 and a half, you can open an IRA. So those are the two qualifications. You can't contribute to an IRA after age 70 and a half, and you have to have earned income. So how much can you put in? In 2019, that number is $6,000 plus the $1,000 catch-up provision because Mike happens to be age 66. So a total of $7,000, caveat being he has to make more than $7,000 to put in the entire amount. It's Ask Annex. Our second one is from Bob. Now, this is the opposing opinion. 62 <laughs> is a desired retirement age, question mark. I think I need to work until I drop. I don't um, know if that's a, a just a statement or right. if that's a question. Right. You know, we, we've heard that before. It's kind of... Uh, it's actually kind of a sad state of affairs because, you know, 50% of Americans have not saved anything. And so, right. therefore, that re- it represents a problem probably for those who have saved, uh, unfortunately. But, you know, you think about trying to work until you drop. And the, the facts of the matter are you may not be able to do that because as you age, there's a lot of things that can happen. For example, your employer could say, we no longer need you. Uh, they could merge. Why are you looking they, at me? Yeah, why are you looking at me? Danny, you're doing a great job. Seriously, Mark. So you know, you look at it, and your your employer uh, your employer may not need your services. You physically may may not be able to do the job. You could have some some health issues. Uh, you could get sick. There's there's all kinds of things uh, that could keep you from doing that. So when you when you go through that process, you have to make sure that you are on track during your retirement years. Certainly, and that's contingency planning, and that's that dynamic piece of financial planning, so that when those things happen, displacement, disability, death of a spouse all those kinds of things that can happen in life, certainly that can get to a financial planning point where you bring in an advisor and some professionals into the conversation to make sure that you're continuing to stay on track with your plan. It's Ask Annex. Should we do a group hug? Ryan is next. I love this. Great show as always. How soon before retirement should I become more conservative with my investments? Are you just reading those in? Because I'm not, I'm not. all right, all right, Danny. Uh, again, the question: How soon before retirement should I become more conservative with my investments? Well, that's funny because you know years ago, Derek, as people got to retirement, they used to do things like go out and buy a bunch of bonds. So they would get the income flow out of that. And, you know, what, what's happening is people are living longer. And therefore, uh, you just can't do that. You just can't get that conservative because the odds are if someone in the if a couple gets to age 65, the odds are more than 50 percent that one of them will make it to age 90. And therefore, you have 25 years to plan for it. So you really just can't run uh, to short term fixed income especially in this market. No, you can't. As I mentioned earlier, you know, rel- and based on our analysis, equities are, are relatively cheap versus fixed income. Fixed income has obviously delivered a great return for those that have owned bonds for the last 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, you know, they got very high coupons and they also got price appreciation as rates went down. But what typically we will do with our portfolio is as we move from more aggressive to more conservative clients is we'll actually increase the percentage of, of equities in the in that portfolio that actually pay dividends. So we're generating an income. We've got a little bit more protection on the downside in the event of you know a cyclical downturn. And also, we do tactical things. So for example, we might move, if we feel the, the economy is weakening, we might move from some, uh, the consumer discretionary sector, say, to the consumer staples sector, or perhaps uh, real estate, which would benefit from lower interest rates. Mark Oswald, you have 30 seconds for this 
one's from Nancy. My husband will retire 10 years before I do. How does that affect the financial plan? Well, it certainly does because one person's going to still be working in the family. And we take all those things into consideration. We do dynamic financial planning. So it's a what-if scenario. So we can look at it as a question today, a question tomorrow, and a question years from now as to what dynamic that has on the family, what dynamic that has on the financial plan. Mark Oswald, nice job. I give him 30 and he does it in 15. How about that? Good job. All right. They're uh, sticking around. Uh, Coming up next, Randy Winkler from our planning team talking about long-term care insurance. What is it that Annex Wealth Management does? Well, financial and retirement planning. We do investment managing, tax prep, and planning, estate and legacy planning. You heard Joe Martin a little bit earlier. Lots of education. We do 401k plans for businesses. You can start at AnnexWealth.com if you want to get that free portfolio analysis, especially if the uh, turbulence has kind of concerned you and you're getting closer to retirement, get that plan in place. Just click that Get Started button and we'll get going. Again, AnnexWealth.com. Team Tech. Trust. Money Talk is straight talk from a local fee-only fiduciary. It's time to know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference? It's Team Tech Trust and a conversation about long-term health care insurance. Randy Winkler is a CFP and Manager Financial Planning at Annex Wealth Management. Randy, welcome back. Thanks, Danny. Okay, let's go basic. What is long-term health care insurance? Unlike traditional health insurance, long-term care insurance is designed to cover long-term services and support. Generally, you're not sick in the traditional sense, but you're unable to perform two of the six activities of daily living, which are bathing, dressing, eating, toileting, transferring, and continence. So it doesn't really take over for traditional insurance. It kind of supplements it? Yet, if you think of it, traditional insurance and even Medicare are generally intended for conditions that are temporary or where hopefully you're making progress or you're improving. There's always different situations, but with long-term care, generally you're, you're on a downward slope. There's, okay. It's not intended to be a, a uh, recovery. So the difference between Medicare and long-term care insurance would be? So Medicare is trying to treat the health issues that come up that hopefully you can Im- improve on. You know, you've got some issue, you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, and the thought is that going to get, get healthy and be back to normal. Where long-term care, typically you're not going to be recovering from some of these things. If you can no longer walk around on your own or if you can't go to the bathroom without assistance, sometimes those change. There can be therapy situations, but in general, long-term care is long-term, where healthcare is more shorter term. And it provides for, for those caregivers. And sometimes the thought is, is that maybe family members would be the, the caregivers. That's really, really tough to do. First off, there's an impact on those caregivers. If they're family members, they either have to take time off work or they have to leave jobs. It's hard on them personally. Studies on this are dramatic. For the caregiver, like let's say my wife is taking care of me, it's going to reduce her lifespan by 10 years. They've shown that over time. It's very, very stressful. It also changes the dynamic. You go from being a partnership to being a caregiver and a care receiver. It could be a child. In some cases, it could be a parent caring for a child or a child caring for a parent is more normal. But it changes the dynamic of the relationship in ways that generally are not positive. You know, I see it firsthand because I have a friend on Twitter and she chronicles her caring for her mother with Alzheimer's and it's it's brutal. It's really tough. Yeah, it's it's something that changes your entire life. You have to take time off from work. How do you take a vacation if you're caring for a aging family member? So it's something to really factor in. And 20 years ago, I remember talking to people when you brought up the idea of long-term care. It was always, "Oh, she'll take care of me or he'll take care of me." We're talking about long-term care insurance. When do people start to consider that? What age 
That's a very good question. And depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Uh, generally, most people start considering it if they're not being getting guidance, probably in their 50s or 60s. Um, I've seen people as early as their 20s purchasing it, and I've seen as late as 79, I think, was the oldest I've ever seen. The challenge and the decision here is well, with both cost and health. So if you start very, very young, if a 25-year-old buys long-term care insurance, it's going to be pretty cheap, but he's going to be paying for it for 50 years. Probably going to be insurable because they're very healthy. If you wait till you're 75, it's going to be much more expensive, but you're going to be paying for it for a shorter period of time. But the bigger concern is if you wait and then you're no longer insurable. It's not something that, oh, you're not insurable now, try back in five years, you're probably never gonna be able to get it. But usually the 20 year olds are kind of encouraged to get the disability insurance and then you get into the phase when you have life insurance and then when you think you're done with that, that's when long-term care insurance starts to come in. Right, and that makes for some interesting planning opportunities for a lot of people that have the life insurance or even have the whole the whole life insurance that has some cash value to it. it, it served a great purpose while they were younger, while they had kids in the house, they had a mortgage. Those days are gone, they've got this policy. When they talk about it and think about it, they don't really need it anymore in many cases. That can often be repurposed into a long-term care, so they're just continuing to protect, just protecting for something different. Uh, Danny, here's an interesting stat. About 40% of those who are receiving long-term care today are between age 18 and 64. So it's not just for the, the seniors. Part of the issue is the, that we live longer. Right. We are living much longer, and there's all sorts of medications and medical techniques that are extending lives, but it doesn't mean that we're healthy and able to care for ourselves for that additional 10, 20 years we're living. The stat I saw says about 70% of people over 65 will require at least some type of long-term care services during their lifetime. Yeah, that number blows me away. And as a math major, I can geek out on this kind of stuff, but I remember studying probability theory and looking into the probabilities of certain things that happen. If you look at the ratio, one out of 1.4 people will have a need for long-term care. One in 25 million will die in a plane crash. But people are much more concerned about that, even though it's very unlikely. One in 175 million will win Powerball. Yet people think, well, somebody's got to win. So there's a lot of these statistics, and this is one of the ones that it's a pretty good chance you're going to have a need for it, and people need to start thinking about it. And there's different types of long-term care insurance. Right. And that's something that's actually pretty nice. The insurance industry and the government are making things more appealing to uh, the consumers. In the old days, and what most people think of as a long-term care is what's called traditional long-term care, think of it kind of like car insurance. You pay your premium, you keep paying your premium. If you ever have a claim, it's there, but if you don't, it's gone. So people in general do not have a problem with that with their car insurance, but people do have a problem with that with long-term care. They say, well, what if I don't use it? which is a very interesting question because you never want to get your money's worth out of your insurance. You know, but people look at long-term care in a different way because it does cost a little bit more. But because of this, there's clearly a need for it with the aging baby boomers. You know, 10,000 people are hitting age 65 every day. The government has changed some laws. The insurance industry has created some new products that make it more appealing. So there's now some hybrid-type products that combine things. It combines an investment with long-term care. It combines life insurance with long-term care. So you get kind of an either or. If I need it, I got it. If I don't, I have something else. But the percentage of people who have long-term health care insurance is still really low. It's really low. I did some research on that, and I couldn't find any really firm numbers, but I saw anywhere between 6 and 20%. So it's a very, very low number of people that are actually looking into and purchasing this kind of product. So what we do at Annex is we work with our clients to meet their needs. We don't sell products, but we do have resources for whatever is needed to do the job. 
A big part of that is our planning team. They're at the front end of our free portfolio analysis. And Randy, that's you and your team. But once you're a client, you still have all the brain power from that department. Thank you for using some of your brain power today, Randy. Randy is a CFP and a manager of financial planning at Annex Wealth Management. Sure appreciate you helping us navigate long-term health care insurance. Oh, thrilled to be here, Danny. 1050. This is Money Talk. Annex Wealth Management. Back in a bit. W277-CV and WTMJ Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ. The longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. And we're back. It is Saturday. It's August 24th. We always start the show with the Week in Review. If you just joined us or if you missed it or you want to hear it all the way through, it'll be on our YouTube channel on the Annex Wealth Management YouTube channel a little bit later on. So we always kind of end the show with a look ahead. Well, you start thinking, guys, about, you know, we're coming up on the end of August. And, Dave, you think about seasonality. And historically, the markets tended to do bad in September and October, historically speaking. And now there's a lot of people that are talking about maybe that's August now. And maybe when you have a positive run-up into August, you get through the volatility of August, the end of the year can be pretty good. Yeah, Mark. In the last 20 years, the final quarter of the year has generated three times the returns of the prior three quarters. So certainly seasonality would suggest uh, investors take advantage of the volatility and look to better position their portfolios into year-end. That's an excellent point. As a matter of fact, you know, we get lots of questions about, you know, where I should be invested and, you know, should I be invested internationally? What does the fixed income market look like? And that's really what dynamic asset asset allocation is. And, you know, where do you put your chips, if you will, uh, given this the current situation? And there is a lot of moving parts. And you talk about really uh, what's happening with China and does that does that represent an issue? You talk about what's happening with Germany and the fact that they had a negative uh, G. GDP quarter, and obviously that's a precursor to a potential recession over there. And of course, the Federal Reserve is not lowering rates as fast as they need to, apparently. So these are all leading up to a question of what do I have in my portfolio? Why do I have it there? How much am I paying? And how does it go into my entire retirement plan, not only in an accumulation stage, but as importantly or more importantly, into a distribution stage? That's an excellent point because we get calls from WTMJ listeners every week, new people that want to go through the exercise because when you get a couple of years in front of retirement or you're starting to think about what if, could we do it now kind of questions, that's a lot of the people that we see on a daily basis. And the question becomes, you know, now that I've gotten past accumulation, I've saved everything that I want to save or that I need to save to be able to retire comfortably, and that's the goal for most people. You get to distribution strategies, to your point, Dave, and you've got a lot of times different buckets of money. You've got the brokerage account, which might be non-qualified, maybe a 401k or a 403b that you've had at your employer, that there's got to be some decisions made. Do you roll it over? Do you keep it in the plan? What are the costs of doing that? What are the opportunities of, of taking a rollover? And then you might have a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA, and you start thinking about doing tax planning. A lot of people do tax preparation, and that's what did you do in the last year? It's really looking in the rearview mirror and saying, how do I file my taxes? Tax planning is looking out over the next five years or 10 years, to your point, and saying, how do we maximize the income that we're going to have by taking it from these different buckets in a strategic way to maximize the amount that we take out and minimize the taxes at the same point in time? That's distribution planning. It's just as important as accumulation planning. And that's what a comprehensive wealth management firm does, is it brings an elite team of people. So you have, uh, as you well know, we have juris doctorates on staff, lawyers, we have uh, we have CPAs, we have CFAs, we have a ton of CFPs on staff, and everyone who walks through the door gets access to that elite 
team. And so when you're trying to vet out who I should work with, the, one of the questions are, who is my team? Is it just a guy sure. or a guy and his assistant? Or do you get the full scale of an elite team and full scale wealth management in a fee only fiduciary environment. Excellent point. And when you start thinking about distribution strategies, you can get in a situation where somebody has a bias. So you might get to a point where you're rolling out your 401k or your 403b, and the person that's sitting across the table from you is not a fiduciary or a fee-only advisor who's going to earn a commission if they sell you the right annuity contract. And that's the pitfall that you have to be careful of, because some of those decisions are forever decisions, or they can come with a 10-year time frame before you can get out of that contract, for instance. And that's just one example. So when you're trying to make that decision of who you want to work with in your financial plan for the long term, when you get to that point in retirement, look for a fiduciary, look for somebody who's fee only, look for somebody who doesn't have the biases of selling products to you like a commission salesperson often does, because those can make a huge difference in the success of your financial plan, both in the short term and over the years of retirement. Mark Oswald, Annex Wealth Management. We always say team, tech, and trust. The first stop this weekend, you can do it, is AnnexWealth.com. Just click that Get Started button. It's a very quick process. We'll get some contact information from you, where you heard about it. The most important thing we do in that form is tell us a little bit about yourself. That'll give us kind of a framework to uh, kind of figure out just exactly uh, what the process should be. But we take a look at all your stuff and we come back and we present it in in. in in plain language, we are a fee-only fiduciary. That is important. We ask you to know the difference. This has been Money Talk. We'll see you in a week. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Good Karma Brands Milwaukee, LLC.